We're going to be in two passages this morning. You can turn to Hosea chapter 9, where we find ourselves ourselves rather in the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea the prophet who married a prostitute for very particular reasons. You can turn to chapter 9 in Hosea. We're, we're only going to read the first verse, however. You should read the rest of the chapter, but you'll find in reading through it today or later in the week that this chapter is much like all the other chapters in this middle section of Hosea. So we're going to read the first verse of chapter 9, and then we're going to leapfrog to John chapter 4 and look at a very familiar story in John 4. We'll read verses 1 through 26. And trust me on this, the two passages fit together. They go together actually fairly well. Young Christians, young theologians, I want you to listen for Jesus meeting a particular woman in the story that we'll be hearing from in just a couple of minutes. And I want you to see if you can answer this question. What does Jesus give to the woman he meets? He gives her something, but it's a little difficult to find what it is. So see if you can hear exactly what Jesus gives to this woman. This is the good news of salvation for prostitutes from Hosea 9 and John 4. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. And now to John's Gospel. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples... Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty Or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And Lord Jesus, we need to meet with you this morning in the same way that this woman unexpectedly met with you. And we need you to speak to us the words of life and love, just as she needed them. And we need the living water as well because we thirst and we try to satisfy our thirst with all kinds of things and none of those things is satisfying. We need for you to show us and tell us and give to us the very things you did with this woman. And with that, our thirst will be driven away and we will be happy and satisfied. Do all of these things for us. And surprise us yet again. And for it we will give you thanks. We pray these things in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? The wonderful thing about the Bible is you don't have to read any of its parts isolated from all of its other parts. The parts of the Bible are meant to fit together. The different parts of the Bible are not antagonistic. They're not vacuum-packed and hermetically sealed off from each other to prevent cross-contamination. In fact, we understand passages with depth by reading them in the light of other passages. It's like standing in line at Disney World, which is a strange comparison, I know, but hang with me. The last time we were at the Magic Kingdom, we were standing in one of those endless snaking lines that folds back and forth on, it, on itself again and again and again, like a cattle chute. And we were walking through the line, and my daughter asked about all the props lining the walls of the ride's entrance. So in the Pirates of the Caribbean, you weave your way through a Spanish castle, and there are kegs of gunpowder and stacks of cannonballs and coils of rope. And as you get closer to the ride itself, there are cannons cut into the walls. In the Jungle Cruise, there are crates with stenciled letters and lanterns and canvas tents and more coils of rope and a pith helmet hanging from a hook. And my daughter said, what is all this stuff? And I said, look, every ride is a story. And if you understand the story, then the ride isn't just a ride. You get to feel like you are part of the story. So later in the day, we were sweating our way through another endlessly snaking line. And I heard my daughter say to my other daughter, Look, every ride's a story. And if you understand the story, it's not just a ride. You get to be part of the story. How do you not know this stuff, she said. Where have you been? The story of the Bible echoing in Hosea. Did you catch how we said that? That's very important. 
Hosea doesn't have his own story. It's the story that's told in all the scriptures, the story of the Bible picked up and reverberating in Hosea is a three-part story. This is the only story the Bible tells. It's the story of grace turned into disgrace, turned into grace abounding. Believe it or not, the message of Hosea is not, you are prostitutes. That would be tremendously deflating and unbelievably discouraging. If that was all there was to the prophecy, there would be no need for the prophecy at all. And in fact, if God were going to leave it at that, the Bible would be just over two chapters long. The Bible would end after verse 14 in chapter 3. A holy book, just 70 verses long. The shortest holy book in history. In fact, there would be no history because there would be no humanity to know about it or to read through those 70 verses. Because without good news, there is no reason for God to allow us to go on living. But there is a verse 15 in chapter 3. And verse 15 holds out to us the gospel that is retold in hundreds of verses following that verse. And the promise is the man and the woman would have a descendant rise up from their line who would crush the head of the serpent. So the initial grace of creation, which is turned into ruined grace, when the man and the woman make themselves prostitutes, they're free agents for love, they say to themselves, we can find a better version of love than what God is holding out, into, holding out to us. So initial grace turned into ruined grace then becomes restored grace, grace abounding, amplified grace, grace to reconcile and atone and restore through a Savior. The message of Hosea is not you are prostitutes. It's something else, which is important to hold on to because the book is full of judgment passages. Did you hear the open to the chapter that we're in this week? Rejoice not, O Israel. You have nothing to be happy about. Exult not like the peoples. You've played the whore. You've forsaken your God. You've loved the prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. Did you catch it? You play the prostitute for a harvest. For grain and bread and wine. Whatever fills your belly and whatever makes your head swim empty and light and free of trouble. You give your heart and your souls and yourselves and your love to anyone who promises to give you escape and distraction and easy solutions and comforts and the good life and efficiency. So Israel ran through a succession of slick kings. They'd set up a king and assassinate him. They were in search of national security and better economies. That's all they wanted. And it was prostitution. And Israel envied its neighbors. It made all these political treaties, these military treaties with all the surrounding nations and people groups. 
because they wanted to be more like the nations than they wanted to be like the God who had made them a people for himself out of nothing. They were nothing before he claimed them. And that's prostitution. And Israel chased after a pagan fertility god named Baal. And Baal is a rutting bull who promises rain and crops by exercising a libido that won't quit. And remember, worship takes on the attributes of the one worshipped. And that should give you a picture of what the typical church service in Israel looked like at this time. And that's prostitution. And meanwhile, Israel still kept with dutiful observance all the rights of the covenant that Yahweh had made with them. And they had the nerve without blinking to recite the liturgy of the covenant. Oh Lord, you are our God and we are your people. Oh Lord, you are the only one for us. But their hearts weren't in it. It was a slap in the face. It was a kick in the teeth. It's like having a wife who dates. She says she loves you and kisses you on the cheek as she runs out the door into the arms of another. And that's why the job of prophet is given to Hosea, a man with a swinging wife. The prostitute is a picture of the people. The unfaithful wife is a picture of the faithless people. But that's not the message. Don't forget that. That's just the setup. The message of the book is not you are prostitutes. Even though that's echoed later on in the New Testament when the Apostle James writes in his letter in the fourth chapter, you live by appetites and passions and not by revelation and by faith. Oh, you adulterous people, you are the prostitutes at the threshing floor. You love the world around you more than the God over you who is reaching down for you. And that's a glimpse of the message. Right there. He is reaching down for you. And not only that, He has climbed all the way down to you. When I was five years old, my parents took me to the zoo. There was a baby elephant on exhibit in a sculpted pit, an artificial habitat, and you could feed the baby elephant. So you'd put a coin in a gumball machine that would spit out a handful of baby elephant food. And you could walk up to the wall and hold it over the wall to the baby elephant who would grab it out of your hand with his trunk and fold it into his long dexterous lips. So I put my coin in the machine and I got my handful of baby elephant food and I couldn't get to the baby elephant because there were too many people standing around. Too many hands reaching down to him and for him to reach up to So how do you get to a baby elephant when there are too many people clamoring around him? Too many hands eager to feed him? It's simple. You just eliminate the competition. So I walked around to the back of the pit and I jumped up on top of the wall. And I jumped to the floor of the pit. So it's just me and the baby elephant now. (laughs) 
It was 36 years ago, so it's a little bit sketchy, but what I remember is the baby elephant coming toward me and screaming and shouting and pointing and a zookeeper vaulting over the wall and scaling the wall again with me in his arms. And I know your question, and the answer is yes, we were escorted out of the park. (laughs) But that's not the point. The point is... You don't leave a kid in a cage with an elephant. And God doesn't leave his people to stupidly, naively, blindly stumble up to sin to be stampeded by it, which is what always happens. No one makes it out of the elephant pit of sin alive. No one. We're always trampled. So Jesus sweeps in. Jesus vaults over the wall to the floor of our pit because 750 years after Hosea's prophetic career comes to an end, Jesus' messianic career is in full swing. And he's leaving Judea, the southern region, because he's getting too much heat and attention from the Pharisees. He's on his way north to Galilee and he passes through the region of Samaria, which is sort of a vestige. It's, It's... a a remaining residue from the earlier northern kingdom of Israel. So the backstory for all of that is, when Israel refused to repent of the prostitution Hosea was warning it against, the Assyrian Empire sweeps in from the northeast and crushes Israel. And they carried all the inhabitants off. And they brought in foreign peoples to live in the land of Israel. Now, it it was a common tactic of conquest. You move the natives out and you bring foreigners in. And it takes away all this pride of homeland and it it eliminates the threat of zealous uprisings being staged. These people don't care about this land. They're not going to try to take it back. So when all the foreigners were moved into Israel, they brought with them their own religion. They brought all their gods and their shady, shadowy practices with them. And then when Israelites come back after their exile, all these foreigners are still in the land. And then after years, there is this bizarre syncretism that evolves. So 750 years after Hosea's prophecies, the religion in the northern territories is a mixed cult of Baalism, Baal the bull god, and these imported worship practices, and the worship of Yahweh on top of all of it. So the religion and worship practices of the people now are worse than they were in Hosea's time, if you can imagine it. So Jesus is in Samaria, and he stops off at a well. The disciples are in town buying food, and he meets a woman there. And this woman is a scandal because she's a Samaritan. She's one of these mixed peoples. Purest Jews thought the mongrelized Samaritans were pollutants. They were ethnic pollutants. She's a scandal because she's a Samaritan. She's a scandal because she's a woman. In ancient Judaism, in ancient Semitic cultures... Women were believed to be inferior to men. They were believed to be the cause of all sin. Specifically, they were the cause of all temptation and all sexual sin. 
And a rabbi like Jesus would never be caught speaking to to a woman the way Jesus is conversing with her now. And lastly, she's not just a Samaritan and she's not just a woman. She's a scandal to her own people. This is the girl who can't say no. She's the woman in town with a reputation. She's the woman in town that everybody whispers about. She hangs out in the taverns and she lets men buy her drinks and she has one too many always. And she keeps turning up in these embarrassing appearances on videos that are advertised during late night television for insomniacs with titles like Samaritans Gone Wild. And she's talented at collecting impromptu lovers. And her sicknesses, she has always mistaken attention for affection. And she's at the well drawing water, but it's late in the day. She's there at noon, which is a strange time to draw water. Usually the women of town come out to the well first thing in the morning, but she's probably there late, deliberately. She's avoiding the other women. She doesn't need their jeers and she doesn't need their judgment. They've looked down on her and scorned her plenty already. It's best just to avoid the situation. So, she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, and she's a party girl. It's the hat trick of lowliness and uncleanness. And Jesus is unafraid of her uncleanness. Being around her won't make him unclean. It works the other way. Being in his presence, hearing his word, receiving his love, makes her clean. And he asks her for a drink of water. And then he does a strange thing. He offers her a drink. She finds it odd because he has nothing to throw down into the well. He has no vessel to draw water with. And he offers her living water. Now, that's not spiritual code for something. That's often the way it's taught, but that's not accurate. Jesus was speaking with very particular spiritual meaning here, but in order to get to it, we have to get to the literal meaning. And in this time, when people spoke of living water, what they meant was a fresh spring, a bubbling spring, a running spring. So on backpacking trips, I've had to drink lots of different kinds of water. On backpacking trips, the objective every night is to stop at the end of the day's hike at a water source, but sometimes there isn't any fresh water to be found. So I've had to drink pond scum. At times we have drunk water out of wheel ruts in dirt roads, mud puddle essentially. At times, we've drunk from running rivers, and the water tasted good, but it was so full of bacteria that we all got sick. And on one occasion, we found living water. There was a bubbling spring at the edge of a forest. It was at the bottom of a deep hole, and other hikers before us had put a wooden box over the mouth of the hole to keep the spring from being contaminated and polluted. And so one of us laid down on his stomach and he took all the other canteens and he reached down into the hole and he filled each canteen very carefully. And the rest of us stood way back to keep from kicking dirt into the hole and polluting the spring. 
And it was the best water I've ever had. And when Jesus is talking to this woman about living water, a bubbling spring from within, he's talking to her about his love. And it's not a tainted love. It's pure love that makes pure. And Jesus says to her, drink this water and you'll never thirst. Listen, you've been drinking muddy, rancid water because you've given yourself to be taken advantage of by man after man. And they've treated you as a disposable plaything. And they've used all the worn out excuses for it too. We knew what we were getting into. We were just in it for a good time. We were consenting. It's fine as long as nobody gets hurt. But who's to say who gets hurt and who doesn't? And you have been hurt. And you've tried to wash your hurt away by drinking more dirty water. And each time you pretended, this time it will really be love. And each time you came out even more thirsty. Five husbands and the one you're with now isn't your husband. You're still thirsty. You wonder if this one will end in deeper thirst too. But here's the living water I have for you. I love you and I'm not going to take anything from you. I'm going to give myself entirely for you. And by the end of the conversation, this woman isn't thirsty anymore. We didn't read the end of the story, but you can read it for yourselves. The woman leaves her jug and she runs back into town. That's an important image. That is not a throwaway detail. She doesn't even go back with the water that she came for. She's not thirsty. She doesn't need the jug. She's been given something else. The living, bubbling water of the love of Christ is roiling within her now, and she came out of town an impure woman, but she goes back into town a purified one. And she says to all the villagers who will listen to her, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. A man who knows my past, in other words, and he's not wanting to cash in on it, and he's not wanting to look down on me for it. He's loved me out of it. And people come running. They all come to have their own deep thirst removed. The woman at the well is the happy ending of Hosea. Because all our prostitution is the deep thirst for love and the fear. We'll never find it. It's not going to be available to us. But the perfect love of Jesus drives out our prostituting fear. And the spring of living water, the fountain of this love, is poured into a manger. And it's poured out on a cross. And it comes gushing out of a sealed up tomb to ruin our thirst for murky, brackish, stagnant water. There is no need to give ourselves away when Jesus gives himself to us. When we realize how Jesus has loved us so deeply, we can stop giving ourselves away so cheaply because Jesus wants us expensively. And that's applicable across our whole lives. With political fanaticism and activism, we want to feel powerful. That's all we're after. What we want is power. 
Lots of us are excited about the way the elections turned out this past week. But I want to tell you, you are no more loved this week than you were two weeks ago. And don't you believe it for a minute. Lots of us are upset about the way the elections turned out this week. And you're no less loved this week than you were two weeks ago. The kingdom is doing its work without your vote. That's the good news. And it's time we started believing that. All we want is power. That's all we're after. With religious rigorism, this policed religiosity, slavishly, dutifully doing what is respectable and impressive, It may be in what we do outwardly. It may be the way we subject those around us in worship to certain particular emotions. It's still slavery. And with that, all we're after is the feeling of approval. With promiscuity of all kinds, promiscuity of the eyes and the heart and the emotions, promiscuity of words and bodies. We want to feel wanted. We're so easily seduced because all we want is to feel wanted. With complaining, we just want to feel heard. Somebody's listening. Somebody's interested. With intellectualism, we want to feel certain and unconfused. With addiction to approval from others, we want to feel valued. With antagonism and blaming and arguing and constant defensiveness, we want to feel that there's a jealous love that we cannot push away no matter how hard we try. For those who love to carry guilt like a self-imposed martyrdom, we just want to feel assurance. And for those who don't believe, but you're starting to believe, you need to believe, and you're still holding God in an arm's distance... What we want to feel in that case is mastery and aloofness. We want to feel that we don't need him, so he can't let us down, and we can't be disappointed. But it's all just prostitution. It's all fooling our fear to feel loved. But what if we didn't have to fake love? What if love was freely given? And we wouldn't have to beg, borrow, steal, or sell for it. If a son brought home the love of his life, and he introduced her as the girl he was going to marry, and says, oh yeah, by the way, she happens to be a prostitute. Mom would burst into tears and sweep the pot roast off the table, and she'd busy herself in the kitchen and stifle her sobs in her apron. And dad would ask to speak to his son out in the garage, and they would argue And trying to protect his son, dad would threaten to disown him and cut him off if he went through with this thing. But Hosea is commissioned to marry a prostitute as a gospel sermon. Because Jesus brings his bride home and he introduces us. Introduces her. Dad, I love her and I'm going to marry her to myself And she's a prostitute. She chronically loves too much and she loves too little all at the same time. But I'll love her with my perfect love. And the father says, beautiful, it's just like we planned it. And then the father leans across the table to speak to the son's chosen love. And he says to her, just to be clear, just so you understand, 
You won't break His heart. He will heal yours. His love is stronger than your fear and it will always be stronger than your fear. And welcome to the family. And suddenly, she's not a girl with a checkered past. She's a girl with a spotless future. The message of Hosea, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is not you are prostitutes, feel guilty, be overwhelmed, and what's more, make yourselves pure. It is not the message, jump, leap, vault, reach for a purity held so high over your heads that you can never attain it, but wear yourselves out trying anyway. The message of Hosea, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is Jesus loves prostitutes. The message is Jesus loves prostitutes right out of their prostituting. Purity that comes in the law feels like a baseball bat. But purity that comes in the love of the Savior feels like an embrace that catches you at the bottom of a very hard fall. And every honest prostitute, tired of being afraid, is happy to be caught. The James Dean film, Rebel Without a Cause, is misnamed. It has nothing to do with being a rebel without a cause, actually. The director admitted it in an interview once. The title for the film was taken from a psychiatry textbook. They used it because they thought it would boost ticket sales. He didn't offer an alternate title for the film, but I would suggest that maybe it should have been called a son without love. So in the movie, James Dean's character, the red-jacketed Jimmy, is constantly in trouble, and his family moves from town to town endlessly to start their life over again and again and again. This current location, where the film picks up their life together, Jimmy's at it again, and he's in trouble all over again. He comes home after being bullied at school and getting into fights. One evening, he comes home after a knife fight. He participates in the Chicky Run, which is racing stolen cars toward the edge of a cliff. And the one who bails out first before the cars plunge over the edge of the cliff loses. And at one point, Jimmy and two of his friends, Judy and Plato do this very bizarre thing. They run away and they hold themselves up in an abandoned mansion and they make themselves a pretend surrogate family for each other. Jimmy and Judy play the parents and Plato is their son. Their home lives are so messed up, they decide they're going to rewrite their own history together. In Jimmy's case, we know why he's doing all of this. His father is weak and a coward and his mother is domineering and bullying. And they're the two qualities that we fear most because those are the two qualities that make us feel most unloved. But what Jesus shows us with the woman at the well is our God is not weak and he's not a bully. He's strong and he's affectionate and he's good and he's pure. He sends a Savior to love prostitutes. 
And he loves them right out of their prostitution. And from that perfect love, we can walk away from all of our prostitutions as easily as walking away from a well that can't quench our thirst. And that's the good news. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, it all comes to this. We give ourselves to false lovers because we're terrified that you don't love us. It's as simple as that. We do not trust the love of God to be full and free. And so we have to bargain for love with those who don't have it properly to give. And we pray that you'd forgive us and turn our hearts. And from your perfect love, pull us away from our prostitution. And we thank you for the good news that the Savior loves us in our past and out of our past. And we pray that the old man and the old woman under the power of sin would be put to death in us more and more and that we would be the new creations of the gospel, new men, new women, new children made to look more like the Son because in His full and free love He has given to us a craving for His own purity. It's not a burden. It's something we long for. Because that is true love. Now we get to eat and drink of your love again. Empty and starved for love. We get to come to the table and we get to be fed with a mouthful of bread. And cold and uncertain of love. We get to come to your table and take a deep swig of wine that warms us all the way down. The love of God has not abandoned us or left us the way we fear. We've abandoned it. And His love, His grace abounding has chased after us in Jesus the Savior. So help us to eat and drink with joy and gratitude and freedom and peace and assurance. And give us the joy this week of seeing our prostitutions as useless things, things we don't need, and things we can turn our backs on. And for all of this, we will give you thanks.